A few notes before we get started. This is episode three. If you're just coming to this story, I suggest you go back and listen from the beginning. Everything will make a lot more sense. Also, this podcast has content about sexual violence and may not be suitable for all listeners. For information or resources, go to www.rainn.org. Finally, a note about the use of the term sexual assault in this series. Sexual assault has a colloquial meaning and can also be a legal term. Its legal definition varies across the U.S. and in different countries, including in Spain. In this podcast, when a woman describes what happened to her, we use the terms and descriptions she has used, in her words. When a survivor says, I know my body, I know what it feels like to drink alcohol, something happened that night that was wildly different from what I've ever experienced before— To me, that makes my ears perk up a lot more in the direction of a drugging. Last time on Motive, Gabrielle Vega publicly accused her Spanish tour guide, Manuel Blanco Vela, of drugging and raping her. She was unprepared for what happened next. Soon other women were reaching out to her saying, me too. My Facebook account was flooded with messages. My Instagram was blowing up. I created an email for girls who knew anything, and that received a ton of emails. Gabrielle and her dad made a huge Excel spreadsheet to keep track of all of the women. Some of them, like Erin, hadn't let themselves think about Manuel in years. My friend sent me the video from the Today Show, and that was the first time I'd thought about it in a while. And so it was suddenly like... I think I did my processing seven years late. Erin told Gabrielle that she was sexually assaulted by Manuel in 2012. I had no idea that this had happened to anybody else. Gabrielle took notes in her spreadsheet. And in the description column by Erin's name, she wrote, believes she was drugged. There are eight women we talked to from Gabrielle's spreadsheet who believe they could have been drugged by Manuel. Gabrielle notes the dates they happened. Fall 2011, November 2012, November 2012, November 2013, November 2014, October 2015, April 2017, and April 2017. The predators who commit drug-facilitated sexual assault are getting away with it. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Candace Mattel-Khan. This is Motive. Episode 3, blackout. My dad 100% was like, let's fucking go. Like, I've been waiting for this day (laughs) to go after this guy. I'm going to do whatever I can. In the days following the Megyn Kelly Today Show, Gabrielle and her dad, Raul, were overwhelmed with a number of women reaching out. They decided they wanted to take legal action. But Raul didn't know how to go about it. At the beginning, it was very confusing to try and figure out from the U.S. perspective, how do you even pursue this in Spain? You know, there was nothing from the Spanish government. Zero, as far as I'm concerned. Raul started reaching out to everyone he could think of. We had to figure out on our own. We started making calls, trying to find out. You know, luckily we we have contacts in Spain because I have family in Spain. So we found out a way to navigate ourselves. He, like, knew people who, like, knew the general consul in Miami at the Spanish embassy and contacted everyone he could. 
Eventually, they got in contact with an official at the U.S. Embassy in Madrid. And Gabrielle, over the course of the next few weeks, started sending over the names and phone numbers of the women on her spreadsheet. She wanted, more than anything, for Manuel to be arrested. I want him to have to answer to every single accusation. I want him to be exhausted from having to answer all of these women. I I want him to be sentenced. I want him to go to prison for a very long time. I asked Gabrielle if I could see her spreadsheet. I wanted to speak to these women and try and make sense of what was on there. At first, she was reluctant. What was I going to do with it, she wanted to know. Would I leak it? Over the last year that I've gotten to know Gabrielle, one thing I've come to understand is that she is very protective of these women who have come forward to her. Gabrielle feels like she represents them. She's their leader. She will make sure they get justice. For me, it's kind of an honor to be that person, but it's a huge responsibility. I want to make sure that I get everything right, that the girls are able to trust me throughout this process. I'm never going to push them to do anything they don't want to do. I don't know. I, I feel like it's like the job of a lifetime. Eventually, Gabrielle did show me the spreadsheet. And one by one, with Gabrielle's permission, I started going down the rows, calling women, listening to their stories. Hi. Erin, hi. Hi, how are you? When did you study abroad in Spain? I studied abroad last January. The spring semester of 2012. I got there at the very end of August of 2011. From September 2009 till December 2009. Over the last year, my editor and I have talked to more than 25 women on Gabrielle's spreadsheet, 17 of whom, including Gabrielle, agreed to tell their stories on tape. And I want to share one of them today. I think I'm okay with first name only. <laughs> what am I okay with? That's a great Erin is one of the eight women we talked to yeah, who believe she might have been drugged the night she was raped. Experts we spoke with say drug-facilitated sexual assault is a crime that is underreported, undercounted, and underprosecuted. Drugs and alcohol can completely incapacitate a person and make it easier for a predator to commit sexual assault. And from what Aaron told me, the drugs are what allowed Manuel to do what he did to her. They made her physically unable to move. They made her question herself the next day. They allowed someone else to take control of her body. It was 2012, and Erin had just graduated from college. She decided to spend the next two years on a program teaching English in Seville. I wasn't... How do I say it? I wasn't very cool. Um, (laughs) So I think when I first got there, I don't know, I felt like a little bit of an outsider, and it was definitely a little foreign to me. I've never been much of a nightclub person, but I I think it was something about the teach abroad culture, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Or I think that people who have studied abroad, there's this like expectation of going out, adventure. It's all just fun. Like most of the women I've spoken with, Erin went on one of Manuel's Discover Excursions trips. She didn't really hang out with him on the trip, but she knew who he was. 
I didn't know him, I knew of him. And it's weird saying this now that I'm older, but we were like, he's the old one. Because I think he was over 30, so that was ancient at the time. Aaron says the Manuel and his tour guides were known around Seville as, quote, the guys that got you into clubs. I've heard this a lot now. And just like almost all of these stories begin, one night, Aaron went out. It was November, and everyone planned to meet up with some of the Discover Excursions tour guides later in the night. And I remember talking to my friend and being like, dude, do we have to go out with, you know, these Discover Excursions guys? Like, I don't really feel like it. It's not really my scene. And my friend being like, yeah, but everyone likes them. Let's just go. It's fine. Erin says that her memory of the night is perfectly fine. Up until a certain point, where it gets patchy. At some point, my memory is just really gone until I get these really lucid flashes. So I have a flash of being at the next bar, talking to someone that I didn't know. And up until the point where you lose memory of of what was happening, up until that point, do you have any idea how much you had to drink? I only remember one. You remember having one drink and then your memory goes out. Yeah. Erin says she remembers being at a bar. And then her next memory is of suddenly being in a car with Manuel outside of her apartment building. I remember being in the car and getting out and I I couldn't walk. I mean, I was not able to hold myself up. And my muscles just felt like every time I stood, I was just sinking And I remember looking over and just immediately thinking, why is Manuel here? Erin says Manuel took her into the stairwell of her apartment building. It was late, and it was dark, and nobody else was there. He kind of got me in there, and I was still kind of disoriented and confused, didn't really know what was going on. And I remember him kind kind of adjusting me against the wall, And then I remember he started kissing me, and it was just like this feeling like like he must be confused, you know? Like, oh, he's like, what? No, no, no. Like, this doesn't make sense. This isn't something that we've agreed to. Like, I don't know you. I don't know what's going on. And I said, and I was having trouble speaking, but I kind of got out, you know, I was just like, no, 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 no. And... I just remember he just laughed like it was the funniest thing. Like like you would laugh at your drunk friend when they're doing something silly, except for I was like, no, I'm being serious. Like inside of my body, I was saying, no, I'm being serious. But then I couldn't make my body do what my mind wanted it to do, if that makes sense. Sorry. Like, it just feels a little unfair that the part that I remember of that night is the part that I would love not to remember. And the feeling of just wishing I could go back and, like, somehow get back inside my body and have more power or something. We played Aaron's story for Jane Manning 
a former prosecutor who has worked on sexual assault cases for the last 20 years and has heard a lot of stories like Aaron's. She's now the director of the Women's Equal Justice Project, where she focuses on cases of drug-facilitated sexual assault. We asked her whether what Aaron describes sounds like a drugging. So there is a phenomenon of people kind of freezing under traumatic circumstances where panic can just induce a person to just sort of freeze and not move. That said, what this young woman is describing sounds different. I feel like the the best way to describe it is it, it kind of felt like if you have a dream about yourself and you're like watching yourself in the dream at the same time that you're experiencing it, if that makes sense. Manning says that does make sense. There are hundreds of drugs that can be used to disable a person and make them vulnerable to sexual assault. Everything from prescription painkillers to synthetic drugs like GHB and ketamine. And Manning says some of them can elicit this kind of symptom. Someone who's experienced intoxication by that category of drugs will often say it was like I was disconnected from my body. Like I was watching myself like from a distance. This experience of being a witness to what is happening to your own body. It was like my body wasn't in my control, but my mind was in and out of being in control. Of the mind not being able to connect to the body to make your limbs move. And that I physically couldn't get my legs to move or get my arms to move, you know. When a survivor says, I know my body... I know what it feels like to drink alcohol. Something happened that night that was wildly different from what I've ever experienced before. It was a different experience than I've ever had in my life. I've been drunk before, and this felt, it felt really different. To me, that makes my ears perk up a lot more in the direction of a drugging. Aaron says that at some point, Manuel put her down on the stairs. And... I remember thinking, like, my apartment is three floors up. The only way out of this for me would be to just just get out of there. At some point, I did turn around, and I don't remember how I got from one to three, but I remember getting in my doorway, and he wasn't behind me. And I remember realizing he's not behind me, he's not following me. I got into my doorway and woke up my roommate. Aaron's roommate told me she'd never seen Aaron so upset. She said Aaron got sick and was almost passing out in the bathroom. That's when Aaron told her that Manuel had forced her to perform oral sex. Her roommate says she then helped Aaron clean up and get into bed. And she kind of took care of me while I cried and um, until I fell asleep. When Aaron woke up the next morning, disoriented and upset, she couldn't find her phone. She soon realized that when she had been going up the stairs the night before, she dropped it. Holy crap, like, this guy's got my phone. Aaron asked her roommate to get it back for her because she didn't want to see Manuel. But he showed up with her phone before that could happen. He actually showed up and knocked on the door. And I answered the door and I didn't... Like, I just remember it so distinctly because he laughed at me again. And it was the same way he laughed at me when I told him no. By laughing like that, it made me feel like I was crazy. That that I must have misinterpreted what happened. That I must have, you know, not made myself clear that somehow I was wrong about what had happened to me. Because if I was right about it, then how could somebody be acting so normal? And how could somebody be laughing? And so 
I spent the day just sort of trying not to think about it. Erin is number 10 on Gabrielle's spreadsheet. She's not the only one who believes Manuel used drugs to rape her. It's also the case for seven others. Number one, number two, number three, number four, number six, number seven, and number 12. We'll be right back. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so... No one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Women who travel are at heightened risk for drug-facilitated sexual assault because you're in unfamiliar territory, you're away from family and friends and support system, you're not familiar with the legal system or the hospital system, it's going to be harder to communicate with medical professionals, it's easier to get away with this crime against a woman who's in an unfamiliar setting. And many of these perpetrators know that and they deliberately target women and girls who are traveling. It's insidious. You say you're pretty sure you were drugged. How can you know? I can't know. I didn't get tested. I never went to the hospital to get tested. I didn't even realize I was, like, really drugged. I didn't really know what to do to prove it. I truly have no idea. I heard this a lot when talking to women. I can't know for sure because I never got a drug test. You might be wondering that, too. Did any of the women get a blood test, a urine test, a hair test, something that would show proof of drugs in their system? No. None of these eight women ever got a drug test. We'll explain why in the next episode, when we talk about why sexual assault is still so underreported. Let's just get one thing out of the way. Even if any of these women had gotten some kind of test, it might not have made a difference. Some drugs metabolize so quickly that by the time a victim gets tested, the drug is no longer detectable. Plus, at least in the U.S., there are no uniform standards for testing. Every lab is pursuing its own practices in terms of what drugs they test for and at what level of sensitivity. So depending on what lab you go to, you might get different results. Not all labs have tests that are sensitive enough to detect certain drugs. Also, there are so many new drugs available each year on the illegal market that labs simply cannot keep up with developing new tests fast enough. This is a real problem in trying to investigate cases of drug-facilitated sexual assault because the lab will say, well, nothing came back. This must mean you weren't drugged. And that's absolutely not the right conclusion. And getting a false negative? Well, that just makes it harder for a victim to prove what happened. 
So in cases of sexual assault and a good investigation, experts told us, you really have to look at the victim's whole account. Listen to her describe what happened, how she felt, what her symptoms were. One of the most common symptoms, experts told us, is some sort of memory loss. It's one of the reasons why predators use drugs. They put the victim in a state of blackout, so her perception and processing is severely impaired. But people around her might not be able to notice. So you can have a victim walking around in a state of what a toxicologist might describe as catatonia, in a catatonic state where she's walking upright, she's you know looking ahead of her, she appears to be conscious, but she has no real idea what's going on around her and no real ability to extricate herself from a difficult situation. He was handing me a lot of drinks, and I completely blacked out. I had maybe had maybe like one drink before at dinner and then a couple drinks there, and then total blackness. The eight women who believe they could have been drugged by Manuel all describe some kind of memory loss. I took one shot, and the next thing I remember was being in his car. So I do not remember how we got to the car. He gave us all of the drinks, so we didn't buy anything. He invited myself and two of my friends back to his apartment. I don't really remember that much after that. I was in a bed, a strange bed that I had never seen before. The next day I woke up and I was naked in his bed and he was next to me. If you've got a group of people all saying, yeah, I had symptoms that just didn't match what I had to drink, that really gives you even more to go on. I couldn't be that drunk after a shot and just black out. That said, these eight women describe symptoms that experts say could be consistent with intoxication from alcohol. But here's the thing. Whether a substance was put in their drink, they were being plied with drinks, or they were just voluntarily getting drunk, it doesn't really matter. Because alcohol is a drug. In fact, it's the number one drug of choice. Manning says predators often use alcohol to incapacitate their victim or deliberately seek out someone who is already intoxicated. And both of those cases are also drug-facilitated sexual assault. If you're robbed while you're drunk, everyone still understands that's a robbery. Or if you're beaten up while you're drunk, everyone still understands that's an assault. But when it comes to sexual assault, there's a real double standard. Just because a woman gets drunk doesn't mean she is consenting to sex. And a person who is grossly intoxicated cannot consent to sex. Erin didn't tell many people what happened to her. She told a friend the day after, but she didn't get into details. I wasn't comfortable saying what had happened. I kind of alluded and, and talked around it, but I couldn't bring myself to actually really address it or talk about it because if I actually addressed it or actually talked about it, then I'd have to deal with it, and that was more terrifying. So she didn't deal with it. For years, Erin says she tried to bury it. She didn't want to think about it. So she tried hard not to think about it. But in the spring of 2018, Erin's friend sent her a link to Gabrielle's segment on TV, and Erin was forced to think about it. I had no idea that this had happened to anybody else, which seems so strange now that we, we know it was so many people. And 
I hate that this happened to other women. I hate that this happened to other people. But at the same time, that realization that this was a person who went out and did this actively to all of these women gave me at least this insight into the fact that, no, I didn't bring this upon myself. This is a man who chose to do this to people. After she watched the story, she immediately reached out to Gabrielle. I want I want the other people who have been assaulted by him, hurt by him, to know that they're not the only ones, too. I know it's, it's it sounds cliche now in this like Me Too movement, but it is. It's like this Me Too. Yeah, that happened to Me Too. It's seeing yourself in somebody else and that this experience happened to somebody else and knowing that because you're not alone in it, that adds some weight to the the argument that it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't need that weight. But there's still something to it. When Gabrielle would hear from a woman like Erin, she would ask them if they wanted to participate in a legal case. Could she share their contact information with the U.S. Embassy in Madrid? Some said yes right away. Others said no. And others were unsure. So Gabrielle spent hours on the phone talking to these women, trying to convince them to participate, trying to explain to them what she was doing. She and her dad were trying to put together evidence for the U.S. Embassy, which they hoped would prompt an investigation in Spain. It was something that I was proud to, like, show him that he, like, instilled in me. Being able to, like, be the one that's, like, spearheading this and really, like, taking control of a situation I never had control of. But Gabrielle soon realized that spearheading this was going to take over her life. I dove deep, like, headfirst, like, this became my life. This was going to be a long and complicated process. It's been very slow and confusing. We have girls from Colorado, Rhode Island, Wisconsin, Florida, Virginia, like literally all over the country. If you've ever dealt with government, you probably understand. Lots of paperwork, a ton of tasks, a lot of waiting, confusing information. So trying to pursue justice in another country? Well, that just adds another layer of bureaucracy. Here's a list of all of the things Gabrielle was told she needed to do or understood she needed to do after she and her dad made initial contact with the U.S. Embassy official. One, tell all of the women to sign privacy waivers. Two, tell all of the women to schedule an appointment with their closest Spanish consulate. Have the women write statements. Get those statements translated to Spanish. Get those statements notarized. Submit statements to Spanish police departments. Submit those statements to the embassy in Madrid. That all sounds pretty reasonable. If you're a prosecutor, a government official, an investigator, not if you're 24 years old, working out of your parents' home in Miami, and you've just officially reported your rape that happened five years ago. You know, they were sending out these privacy waivers, and the girls were sending their statements, and I was forwarding everything to them, and we didn't know what was going on with that. It's like a black hole getting information. It's very difficult. You have to be patient. There were so many questions that I couldn't really give anyone a straight answer. You know, Gabby's had to, like, take on such a heavy lift to keep this thing moving. Wow, I really have, like, a double life, and I've never even met these people. But finally, on June 4th, 2018, 
all of that hard work paid off. Or at least, that's what they thought at the time. Gabrielle got an email she'd been waiting for. An embassy official wrote, Your complaint is officially submitted in a court in Spain. It's currently an open case. Soon, the email said, you should be hearing from the FBI. Next time on Motive, Gabrielle waits and waits to hear from the FBI or someone from the court in Spain and why some of the women finally decide to report their assault for the very first time so many years later. He chose people who were in a vulnerable situation. We were young and we were in a foreign land and I think that was part of his plan. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. The show is produced by me, Candace Mattel-Kahn. The editor is Alexandra Solomon. Additional reporting in Spain by Carmen Ibanez Espinoza. The executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Our intern is Isabel Carter. Thanks to Colin McNulty and Joe Dassault for mixing. Thanks to the listeners whose financial support of WBEZ made this podcast possible.